Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science for this hybrid in-person and virtual event. My name is Minoush Shafiq and I'm the director of the LSE. This event is being hosted by the LSE's Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. And I'm really pleased to welcome our audience in the room as well as everyone who's joining us online. Our speaker today gave a major public speech at Kew Gardens this past July to mark 100 days before the opening of the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, known as COP26. Today, on the eve of the conference, he makes his final public speech before it opens this weekend. And we're looking forward to hearing his thoughts on where the world stands heading into the summit. Of course, it's an irony that those who have the longest lists of accomplishments need no introduction. Uh, nevertheless, I feel the need to say a few words. John Kerry's lifetime of service to his country and humanity has seen him intimately involved with virtually every important issue in international relations in the past 50 years. He currently serves as the inaugural United States Special Presidential Envoy for Climate and was sworn in on President Biden's first day in office in January this, this year, reflecting the importance the administration gave to that role. He previously served as the 68th Secretary of State, the US's chief diplomat between 2013 and 2017. And this followed nearly 30 years serving as the representative in the Senate for the state of Massachusetts, where he was chairman of the Senate committees on small business and foreign relations. He was the nominee for the Democratic Party for president in the 2004 election. His career in public life, though, began even earlier than serving in elective office, as he served first with distinction in the US Navy, and then as prominent activist against the Vietnam War and for the interests of military veterans. Secretary Kerry will speak for about 30 minutes and then we'll take part in a conversation with our very own Professor Lord Nick Stern, the chair of the Grantham Institute. This will be followed by questions and answers with the audience uh, and we will run a bit over uh, since we've start, we're starting a little bit late. For those following this event on Twitter, the hashtag for today is hashtag LSE John Kerry. This event will be recorded and made available as a podcast afterwards. As usual, there'll be a chance to pose your questions uh, at, at the end. And for our online audience, you can submit your questions through the Q&A function on your screen. And for those who are present, you can do it in the old fashioned way by raising your hand and Nick will acknowledge you. Uh, we'll try and get as many questions from the audience as we possibly can. So now let me turn to the main event and I'd like to invite Secretary Kerry to come up to the lectern to deliver his remarks. Uh, thank you very much, Manoush. Thank you so much for a warm and uh, very welcome introduction. I'm very appreciative to be here with all of you. Uh, Nick Cernick, my good friend for many years now, um, it's wonderful to be here. I see you all appropriately socially distanced. Thank you. Um, and I want to thank Nick particularly uh, for his extraordinary leadership on a global basis. Uh, his leadership as the uh, of the uh, Grantham Research Institute and more particularly the way he has contributed to the dialogue and understanding with respect to the climate crisis. 
Uh, it's also special for me to come back here to LSE. I'm proud to tell you my daughter, Vanessa, now CEO of a global health initiative, earned her uh, master's degree here, uh, which also means, I suppose, that uh, she played hooky at the George. Uh, I uh, respect enormously LSE. In fact, I thought about being able to come here, and then I got wrapped up in the... Uh, anti-war movement to Vietnam in the 1960s, 70s. But for 126 years, this uh, terrific institution um, and its students have lived up uh, to your motto, um, which is basically you haven't just looked into the causes of things, you've, you've sought solutions to them. And in many cases, LSE graduates are making that kind of contribution around the world. Let's be clear, uh, the time for debating the causes of climate change is long over. And the time for action is also long overdue. And needless to say, the stakes could not be higher. Nick Stern knows this as well as anybody in the world. He literally wrote the book on the real costs of climate change. And as he summed up this week in an op-ed uh, on this challenge, uh, he said, economists have grossly undervalued the lives of young people, your lives, your livelihoods, your ability to count on the barest of bare minimums and the right to live on a habitable planet. So think about that. I'm sure you do on a regular basis. But this morning, let's think about it in the context of Glasgow. That's why I came here today, four days before what's known as COP26, the Conference of the Parties, the 26th, one of them. I came here to try to provide some context for our meeting as we read the mumbo jumbo and hurly burly of the back and forth in the media with some quick judgments. Uh, I want to make it clear where we stand at this decisive moment in this decisive decade. Now, I had the privilege of being in Rio, 1992, for the very first Earth Summit, which created the COP process itself. The journey from Rio to Kyoto to Paris and now Glasgow has taught me many things, folks. But above all, it has taught me that success in the climate fight is defined not by words alone, but by actions that they inspire. Glasgow has already summoned more climate ambition than the world has ever seen. And in that regard, Glasgow has already achieved success. In, in, I suppose there's a critical question, is all the world fully aligned with what science says we must do to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis in two words, not yet. But more countries than ever before are stepping up. In the course of public life, my friends, you will learn this, those of you who pursue it, you're called on to make a lot of choices every day. Some are hard where the costs and benefits are really closely balanced. This, my friends, is not a hard choice. Addressing the climate crisis is the only choice 
And in every way, the cost of inaction is far greater than the cost of action. A little history is important here. Six years ago in Paris, we came together, 195 nations strong, to commit to hold the Earth's temperature rise to well below two degrees Celsius and to pursue efforts that limit that rise to 1.5 degrees. At the time of Paris, the world was already on track to hit up to four degrees or more of warming on this planet. And yes, the Paris Agreement did pull us back from the brink, and it gave the world a second chance to be able to save ourselves. But Paris always contemplated the reconvening in order to raise ambition as circumstances warranted. Each nation in Paris wrote its own plan, its own contribution, its own definition of what it would do to reduce emissions. And those nationally determined contributions, NDCs as we call them in the, in the parlance of the, the COP, they were a huge improvement on where we had been. They reflected the initial commitments, the first time that the world really succeeded in coming together in Paris to put together a set of plans. Paris set forth mechanisms to regularly review our progress. And while the NDCs offered then did not yet add up to reach the Paris temperature goal, they did send an important signal to the marketplace that 195 nations were simultaneously going to move in the same direction. And for the first time in modern history, more investment went into renewable energy than went into fossil fuels. In 2016, folks, we thought we were off and running. Then a year later, the next president of the United States just plain pulled out of the agreement. The UK, the EU, and other countries filled the breach, as did mayors and governments in my country. And the world owes all of them a debt of gratitude. But now, now, we must significantly accelerate our efforts. That is a judgment not of me or President Biden or of anybody in politics. It's the judgment of the best science and mathematics. That's what this is about. Not ideology, not politics. It's about mathematics and physics. And according to the most recent report from the scientists at the United Nations, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so-called IPCC, devastating consequences await us if global temperature rises above 1.5 degrees or even continues on the track it's been on until we've put forward new plans. Devastating consequences follow if we exceed the 1.5 degrees. And we are now already just about at 1.2. So my friends, I want you to know the United States is fully and deeply invested in accelerating our efforts while there is still time. President Biden has initiated an all of government effort to meet this challenge. Every department, every agency, every cabinet official is at the table. 
The president knows and you know that we're no longer talking about impacts in the future. We no longer need scientists to tell us what will happen because we're seeing it happen now already. And we see it for ourselves. Here in the UK in July, the Met Office issued its first ever extreme heat warning as a deadly heat wave took hold on uh, the nation. In Germany, unprecedented floods killed almost 200 people and swept away homes and bridges. In my country, a supercharged storm drowned people in their basements in the dead of night in New York City, months after more than 150 people froze to death in Texas. The rainforests of the Amazon, a rainforest, is burning and being destroyed at the rate of 10,000 acres a day. 10 million people a year already die from air pollution around the world. Another 5 million die because of the heat. The planet is already at its hottest and least stable point in 125,000 years, and people are dying because of that. And that is just with 1.2 degrees of warming. Now, some of these impacts, I hate to say it, are already irreversible. I talked to one of our top scientists the other day at the Potsdam Institute, Johann Rockström, and he said that he fears that there may have been already three tipping points, the Arctic, the Antarctic, and the coral reefs. So without dramatic action, my friends, some of these things may make life unlivable. Remember that Mother Nature only has one measure of how much emissions are in our atmosphere. She doesn't measure whether it's US, or China, or Russia, or Mexico, Brazil, whatever. It's just atmospheric, it's there. Every ounce matters. Every tenth of a degree of temperature matters. Half of our oxygen that we breathe comes from the oceans. And with a 1.5 degree temperature rise, with the amount of coal uh, impact on the warming of the ocean and the acidification of the ocean, we, we have the potential to lose most of the coral reefs. With a two degree temperature, we do lose them as well as some of our best protection from storms. The basis of the marine food chain, crustaceans, because of the increased acidity, will no longer be able to grow their shells in waters that are more warmer and more acidic. We already see these impacts. At 1.5 degrees, crops from corn to rice and wheat are imperiled. At two degrees, Many of those crops wither and die, especially in Africa and Southeast Asia, threatening starvation for tens of millions of people. If you're like me and you stand in awe of the great mountains of the world, then you will shed a tear that even they are no match for this onslaught. Glaciers from the Alps to the Himalayas are melting with devastating consequences for the billions of people that rely on the waters of the great rivers that they feed, from the Yangtze and the Yellow River, the Ganges, the Danube, all around the world. Tens of millions of people are migrating due to climate change, which could destabilize entire regions. Markets and economies could potentially collapse. Let me be clear, no one no one is exaggerating 
when they call this an existential threat. Just ask the people in the Marshall Islands, Fiji, or in the vulnerable nations of the world. So that is what makes this the decade of decision. And now we must make it the decade of action. To prevent catastrophe, the scientists tell us that we must cut our global greenhouse gas emissions by at least 45% by 2030 in order to get to net zero by 2050. We head to Glasgow in that context. And I head to Glasgow an optimist. So where are we? How close are we to keeping 1.5 degrees alive with a, with a net zero climate resilient 2050? How much of a gap remains? How quickly can we close that gap? And how can we adapt to the impacts of climate change that are already locked into place? Glasgow is the moment and the place to catalyze action and answer those very questions. And country after country is stepping up. We're seeing growing ambition from governments around the world, ambition from the private sector, ambition in the promise of the technology that's on the cusp of revolutionizing energy itself. Between Paris and Glasgow, despite a president who denied the science and a pandemic which destroyed lives and decimated economies, we have seen real progress. In the United States, since rejoining the Paris Agreement, we've committed to reducing our emissions this decade by 50 to 52% and heading to net zero. And we've laid out a path to get there. That means millions of new electric vehicles, charging stations from coast to coast. It means a carbon-free power sector, carbon-free from the biggest oil and gas producer in the world, carbon-free by 2035. It means ambitious actions on forests and new plans for adaptation and resiliency. A generation ago, a moonshot won the space race. Today, the Biden administration's energy earth shots could marshal innovation and turbocharge the clean energy revolution. Imagine driving an electric vehicle from here to Glasgow on a single charge and recharging in five minutes or powering this building exclusively on solar for a few cents a kilowatt hour. Believe me, these things will happen and some of them are happening already. And key to all of this, we aren't acting alone. When I began in this role nine months ago, very few of us were on track to reach the 1.5 degrees goal. Now, nations representing nearly 65% of global GDP will arrive in Glasgow committed to the 1.5 degree limit. And not just committed verbally, but with real plans that are being fought to implement right now, including, that includes in those 65%, more than half of the top 20 economies in the world. That includes Canada and Japan, who have demonstrated leadership and ingenuity. And this is critical. Countries are coming to the table with more ambition than we've ever seen. Enough ambition that if they're joined by other nations, we can actually keep 1.5 degrees alive. I just came back from Saudi Arabia a couple of days ago. Saudi Arabia, anonymous, synonymous, obviously, with the word oil. 
where for the first time they have announced a net zero 2050 goal and are taking plans to deploy 50% of energy in the next 10 years will be renewable. Indonesia agreed to double their renewable energy portfolio to peak emissions by 2030 and get to net zero. South Africa has proposed to meet 1.5 degrees by retiring their old outdated coal plants and replacing them with renewable energy, all while modeling how to manage a just transition that doesn't leave people behind. Mexico now is committed to substantial renewable deployment and will raise the ambition of their NDC beginning next year. I visited there a few days ago with the president and he turned around from an oil-based energy plan into this broader renewable commitment. India, the third largest emitter in the world, has set a renewable energy goal through Prime Minister Modi of deploying 450 gigawatts of renewable energy. And we, the United States, have formed a partnership with India in order to help achieve this goal. So during this, 35 nations have joined what we, what's called the Global Methane Pledge, which we initiated with the European Union. It is a pledge to dramatically reduce the emissions of a greenhouse gas that is from 20 to 80 times more destructive than CO2. And that group includes nine of the top 20 emitters, and we are hoping others will join. We know that many others will join, but we want some of the largest economies to come aboard. And around the world, there is a growing recognition that even as we strive to keep 1.5 degrees alive, we also have to adapt to the fact that there's a warmer world and it will bring more frequent storms, droughts, wildfires. So we have to prepare, even as we mitigate, we have to adapt. We have to prepare and be resilient to those threats that are coming at us. And adaptation does save countless lives and livelihoods. It also makes plain old economic sense, folks. Every dollar spent in adaptation can save up to $10 down the road. In Mexico, they have identified and designated water reserves in their river basins in order to protect drinking water for 45 million residents. In India, after deadly heat waves, they're painting roofs white in order to reflect more of the sun's heat and cool homes. A Africa Finance Corporation is ensuring ports, roads, bridges, and rail on that continent can withstand the changes and the storms that are to come. And we, the United States, are committed to working with these nations that did not cause this problem, but will suffer some of the worst consequences. And there is another profound reason for optimism. More, I, I know there's an automatic kind of suspicion of, of business. Uh, I understand that. But I can tell you with certainty that more and more businesses around the world are joining this fight. Around the world, a revolution has taken place in boardrooms. Just look at what happened with ExxonMobil. Look at the court decision in Germany, the court decision in the Netherlands. Environment, social, and governance, those considerations are at the corporate boardroom table. And corporate leadership in many places is now requiring investment in the environment. 
shareholders are demanding that their companies be part of the solution. And those investments are paying off, including in automotive, aviation, and heavy industry. I met a guy who leads one of the largest, he's the head of the largest cement factory in the world. He's making green cement. But he tells me people are buying not because it's green, but because it's better cement. That's the kind of evolution that we're going to see here in the marketplace. The highest valued auto company in the world, folks, Tesla. The only vehicle it makes are electric vehicles. That's a statement about what people want. The first carbon-free steel was just shipped from Sweden. Volvo just built a fossil-free steel dump truck with many more to come. Air Liquide just announced a new renewable hydrogen plant that would bring zero emission hydrogen to the West Coast market in the United States. LinkedIn says jobs in the renewable and environment sector will soon outnumber traditional energy jobs on their platform. Last year, wind and solar accounted for 90% of new electricity capacity in the world. Think about that. 90% of all the new electricity produced in the world, renewable. Already, renewable energy is the cheapest energy available and the costs are beginning to fall. I just learned in Saudi Arabia about a contract they're letting for solar at about one point some cents. I forget these at 1.9 cents or so. The energy market per kilowatt hour. The energy market is the largest the world has ever known. Think about that. I look at the tech industry that drove Massachusetts's rise in the 1990s, small compared to this energy market. The energy market has four and a half to five billion users today. And it's going up to 9 billion users in this century. But implementing the changes I'm talking about requires investment. And understand something clearly, please. We need to deal in trillions, not billions. The UN finance report says that we need to quadruple investment in this transition from 2.6 trillion up to 4 point some trillion every year in clean energy in order to meet our goals. We all understand too, and, and this, cannot be, this cannot be underscored enough. As much as you may want all of this to happen tomorrow, and it has to happen certainly a whole bunch of it in the next 10 years, no government on earth can fill this gap alone. It can only happen because no government on earth has enough money. It can only happen with the full participation of the private sector. And we are making great strides in this area. On Tuesday, the EU sold its first ever green bond to investors. They raised some 12 billion euros in an offering that was oversubscribed 11-fold. This year, six leading US banks committed that they will invest a floor of $4 trillion over the course of the next 10 years, and they'll put it into this transformation just in this decade. A group of banking alliances will head to Glasgow, and in Glasgow, they will announce that they represent $85 trillion, and they are prepared to invest heavily in the energy sector in order to accelerate this transition. A key to winning this battle is deploying those trillions of dollars rapidly and effectively 
And that means new blended finance mechanisms. It means de-risking certain deals. So money is not scared to come to the table. It means capital allocation that is smart and progressive and forward-leaning. Just think about what a huge economic opportunity this moment is. Biggest transformation since the Industrial Revolution. As an activist, and then as a US Senator, the early climate movement that I knew, and it's one of the first things I became involved in, Earth Day, 1970, the first one. The environment movement I knew then, and over many years was bogged down by private sector resistance. And by all the familiar accusations that costs of action were prohibitive. On the doorstep of Glasgow, the private sector has now made a different decision. The real cost that no one is willing to pay is the cost of inaction. The IPCC report of 2018, the IEA report of this summer, the Financial Stability Board assessment of risk, and the marketplace opportunities for profit are all coming together to drive change and to drive a different approach. But let's be clear, despite all the momentum that is heading into Glasgow, we still face a gap. We have to be honest about it and decide how we're going to deal with it. Everything I have said to this moment underscores why I believe we can overcome that gap. But it's going to take all of us. The world must work together to close this gap. But particular responsibility lies with the top 20 economies of the world, all of whom are responsible for 80% of all the emissions. Just this week, the UN Emission Gap Report made clear that many countries, NDCs, are not specific enough and do not reduce emissions fast enough. Some countries are still building new carbon-polluting coal plants and planning to break ground on more. This, while others have demonstrated that they can meet future energy needs with clean, renewable power. Many countries are mobilizing to cut methane, which accounts for half of global warming. Others have yet to even set a clear target to reduce methane at all. A host of countries are racing to plant more trees to protect and replace biodiversity. Others continue clear-cutting the rainforest. At Glasgow, it will all be held up to scrutiny, the scrutiny of the world. It will be held up to transparency and accountability. And coming out of Glasgow, we will be ready to experience the greatest springboard of all. The combined power of individuals around the world demanding accountability and the power of the marketplace to scale revolutionary technology. Reaching our goals in this endeavor means decarbonizing the power sector five times faster than we are today. It means ramping up renewable energy six times faster. It means more electric vehicles, less methane. Can we do that? Yes, we absolutely can do it. It is not a lack of capacity. It's a lack of political will. It is also important to note that Glasgow is not the end of the road. There isn't suddenly a termination at the end of Glasgow in the meeting when we say, oh my gosh, we still have a gap. No, that's when we go to work over the next years with a 
with that stock take formally built into the Paris process that in 2023 we measure openly and transparently what people are doing. And with the new satellite technology, you may have seen the other day the targeting of a methane leak in Russia, very specifically from satellites that will daily be tracking what is happening on the planet. So by the end of the road, my friends, really, I would say to you that uh, Glasgow is the new beginning of this decisive decade. And the United States has made clear that we stand ready to work with the rest of the world in this endeavor. This is especially true in the developing and vulnerable world. Again, they did not create this crisis, but they and their people are on the front lines and we have to work with them and for them to adapt these changes and to bypass a dirty economy. We cannot afford to go back and redo the mistakes of the past. That's why President Biden has committed to the collective 100 billion goal to help developing nations. We will increase U.S. adaptation support sixfold by 2024. And that money is real in the budget and it will make an enormous difference. Now, there's a temptation on this issue, folks, to talk too much about GDP and emissions targets and not enough about the human beings involved. As a young person, I remember being deeply moved by Robert Kennedy, who reminded us that gross national product measures many things back then when it was called gross national product. It measures things from the forests to the roads to the carnage in our streets, the ambulances, the weapons, the work, but not the health of our children, the strength of our marriages, the quality of their education, the beauty of our poetry. It measures, in other words, all things except that which makes life worthwhile. So we're not just talking about statistics here. We're talking about families, about people. We're talking about parents and children and neighbors and friends, and their lives have to matter to everybody else on the planet. That is what we mean when we talk about a just transition. Without equitable, inclusive adaptation plans, by 2030, 150 million people a year may need international humanitarian assistance as a result of climate-related disasters. With those plans, however, we can cut that number to perhaps 10 million, which is too many, but 10 million by 2050. And ultimately, it really all comes back to you, the next generation of global citizens. I remember being a young activist. I remember having doors slammed in my face. I remember hearing no. I remember being told to wait my turn. I remember being told that those in power were gonna glad to have my input and they'd take it from there. And then they did nothing. Just the other week, I talked to one of the climate activists participating in the hunger strike outside the White House. And he told me that they're angry, fed up with a system that they see is not moving fast enough tired of empty words and broken promises. And I know people all over the world feel that way and they should. I told him he was right to be angry. We should all be angry. But I also believe this momentum we are seeing is real and meaningful and growable. I know that you and your voices and your actions are already making a difference, but I also know you can do more. Next week in Glasgow, we have the chance to win a victory for the next century, for life on this planet. 
And then we'll have to get up every single day and win it again and win it again until the work of this decisive decade is decidedly done. The day after Glasgow, we need you to keep this fight going. And together, my friends, let's get this done. It's doable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, John, for the inspiration, but also the analytical way in which you approached what we must do. We must uh, keep to 1.5. We can, as you laid out so clearly. Um, and it's more than that. As we build in a different way, grow in a different way, develop in a different way, it's just going to be a much more attractive place to be, you know, cities where we can move and breathe and ecosystems which are robust and fruitful. But as you emphasized so clearly and strongly, we have to invest and innovate to get there. It is a much better way, but we have to make it happen and it's investment and innovation and a just transition and building a resilient world. And it was crystal clear, uh, John. So thank you, thank you so much for that. And you picked up um, very strongly and showed in the numbers and the way you expressed it, the momentum that we now have. And uh, Paris was a changing moment. And particularly in the last three years or so, that momentum has built. And you described how country after country now, covering the big majority of uh, emissions is dedicated to net zero. And in our uh, work here at the LSE Transition Pathways Initiative, uh, we reckon something close to half the assets under management in the world. Of course, that's only some of the assets, sometimes half the assets under management in the world are also committed. So as you described, the, you know, the power of public pressure and the power of the marketplace are coming together. And you looked out into this room at the young people who are here. Uh, I think you know, but I have to tell you, as students here at the LSE are not just demanding that we act, they actually are deeply analytical and thinking about what we have to do and helping us along the way. So the question is what you posed, John, how do we take this momentum, which is absolutely clearly there? How do we take this new opportunity to grow and develop in a very different and much more attractive way? How do we actually ramp up now? Um, so in Glasgow, There'll be, there'll be uh, commitments, but they won't actually close the gap in terms of emissions reductions in this decade. And you mentioned the stock take uh, two years from now. So how can we put in place mechanisms which pick that momentum up and really move it strongly over these coming years? Now, this decade is, uh, is obviously, we're already one year into it. Um, we have to find a way of ramping up ambition right through this decade, keeping up the pressure, making the changes. How would you see that developing, as you described, in the, uh, the mechanisms we might put in place in Glasgow for ramping up? Well, Nick, thanks. Um, the, uh, let, me, let me remind everybody of what I said in my comments a moment ago, uh, just to highlight it. 
I said that nearly 65% of global GDP has already made the decision to try to keep 1.5 degrees alive and have put forward plans that actually achieve it. So where are the others? If 65% is almost there, obviously 35% is not. So we have to begin to make certain that we're bringing these other nations along. Now, some of them have legitimate challenges in terms of their economy. Uh, I talked with a minister, for instance, from Iraq. The other day. Not a big, by the way, they're not one of the top 20, but they have a lot of their oil. They, they flare. They got to get rid of the flaring. They got to patch up their pipes that, uh, that leak leakage of, of methane is one of the critical components. And we have to help them because they don't have them in some cases and also need the money. But the point is those countries have got to redo their NDCs. They've got to come and join a family of nations. Now, I'll just, if you haven't run into it already, I will explain to you that some countries are arguing that they deserve to have carbon space, that, that the world has been developing for 150 years. They have not. They get this pass, or the hall pass, for uh, polluting. The problem is, as I mentioned in my, in my comments, Mother Nature doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't know, doesn't divide it up and say, okay, you get this much, you get that much. And, and by the way, if you had a, quote, carbon budget, which you're allocating, current use in China would use about uh, 80% of it all. So that's just, it, it, it doesn't pan out. It's not real. Uh, and, and coal is, is the challenge in that regard because unabated coal, let me be clear, unabated coal. That is to say, there's no capture, there's no storage, there's no, you know, if we're able to capture the CO2, the methane, then it's less, you know, it's not a challenge. Uh, now, we're making unbelievable progress on these different technologies. Uh, battery storage is improving every day. Uh, there's a new molten salt uh, battery process, which actually gets 24 hours of storage. That begins to get into game changer range. You can commercialize it, bring it up to commercial scale. So uh, what we need, folks, is not a lot of finger pointing and screaming at other countries, but a lot of effort to bring them aboard. What do you need to be able to make this transition? All the countries I listed today, from Indonesia to South Africa to Mexico, et cetera, they are willing and ready to make a transition off of coal, but they don't have the money to invest in the alternatives. They need help. That's where the trillions of dollars come in. If we can help de-risk those investments and deploy those trillions because we're creating commercial value in the building of the alternative energy plant, we can buy out or phase out those plants and do it on a schedule which helps us to meet the net zero. So it's really a, 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 what I want to see happen in Glasgow is not just the normal things. I mean, we will hopefully complete the so-called rule book which is critical for the rules of the road by which we measure transparency and contributions and the market rules. And I think we'll get there. But we also need to uh, have a better understanding of how we can work together to deploy that money and get partnerships. We are partnering with India in the effort to help deploy the 450 gigawatts. 
And I'll tell you why it's so important. If India gets 450, when India gets 450 gigawatts deployed, if they do it within the 10-year span, India is on track to hit the 1.5 degree, keeping it alive. Think of that. This incredibly large, amazingly vibrant, uh, you know, democratic economy, it would all of a sudden be leading the developing world in showing that you can do this. And if we, the developed world, can help bring more of the assets to the table that help the transition, this is doable. The problem is there's been a kind of, oh, sort of indifference, a kind of, you know, someone else will do it. We'll come along. I don't want to upset our economic apple cart. And, and they just sort of march on. Everybody has got to make these changes now. We don't want developing countries to say, well, I'm just a tiny country and I'll build a coal plant. Uh, because I can't afford, you know, we don't have anything else available. We have to be helpful in providing, making sure there are those other alternatives that are available. And um, it's political activity that does that, folks. I mean, we're blessed to live, many of us, uh, you know, some of you are not from democracies, but you know what, it's, what, what democracy means. And the fact is, it doesn't work on automatic pilot. And in too many parts of the world, people have left the democracy on automatic pilot to nowhere. And that's where it's going in some places because uh, extremes are grabbing the levers and changing them. Uh, and, and it's a very dangerous trend, frankly. And so one of the things we need to do is make sure everybody is at the table actively working to hold people in public office accountable and make these changes. Thank you so much. John, that really is a very clear, strong way forward. The momentum that you described that was being built, so many other countries coming into the system, the willingness is there. And the key is to help get those investments done. And in particular, mobilize that low cost finance, much of it private, much of it public, but coming together in a really strong way. And that I hope is a really big message that will come that the developing countries of the world, the emerging markets, the economies are starting to be on the way. Not all of them, but the big ones. And uh, it'll be low cost finance will be at the heart of the story. And that has to be private and public working together. You know, there are, you know this, Nick, but there are countries, folks, that have taken their energy mix up to 75, 80, 90% renewable. Yeah. And they're balancing using various methods. Now, it depends on the country's energy mix, how you can balance. But with the right investment, the right efforts, um, we're going to have, I think, more and more capacity there. I, I also think uh, there are other technologies that are being about hydrogen, green hydrogen. Saudi Arabia is embarking on a major initiative to deploy largest solar fields in the world to use that solar energy to drive the electrolyzers, which will separate water and hydrogen and, and, and create the hydrogen, green hydrogen, which can either be transported by ship as ammonia and then reconstituted in hydrogen or piped. And one of the things that could happen is pipelines going underneath the Mediterranean through Greece and Italy and helping to fuel Europe. So, you know, these are not just sketches of the imagination now. These are real things that people are investing money in and driving innovation for. Yeah. And, and storage, likewise. Yeah. You get a week of storage, folks, uh, it's, it's Katie bar the door. That's victory. 
because then you're not worried about baseload. The factories won't shut. The homes won't be without power. And that's something that you always hear from people in public service and public life. They, they don't want everybody coming at them because you can't heat your home at night and you have erratic provision of power. So how you provide steady power is a component of the equation here. Absolutely. In those of you who are watching Glasgow will know that there'll be four technological areas where we're looking for so-called Glasgow breakthroughs, and it will be uh, road uh, transport. Um, it'll, be, uh, uh, it'll be steel. It'll be uh, hydrogen, uh, uh, three of those uh, four Glasgow breakthrough areas. So that is something where I think we'll see the technological stories and descriptions, analyses that you've been offering come through in, uh, in Glasgow itself. Um, now, Can I offer one other exciting 30 seconds? Yeah. Big companies are now joining us in something we've created called the First Mover Coalition. And DHL, for instance, United Airlines, largest cement manufacturer in the world, which I mentioned, they are now going to send signals to the marketplace that they are prepared to buy X amount of green steel. Volvo, for instance, is saying, we're going to build X amount of cars that are going to have green steel. All of a sudden, the green steel market, those guys can say, well, I know I can sell my product. I'm going to do it. And so they invest because there is a green premium. You pay more for it, but ultimately, it's going to come down. And in the products that are produced out of this, it doesn't pass on in a big way to the consumer. So it may cost more for the producer, but through the through the through the supply chain, the price really comes down to pennies, uh, cents at the uh, at at the uh, you know at the retail level. That's why international collaboration. One of the many reasons international collaboration is so important, because you get the economies of scale and you get the right expectations of the direction of investment, and together they really drive it forward. Now, John, there are lots of people who want to ask you. Sure. questions. Um, I'm going to take um, a couple of questions from the floor um, in a good old-fashioned way of people raising their hands. It's so wonderful to be in a room where people can raise their hands and indicate and they're not just sort of pushing a button on Zoom. And um, then uh, Bob Ward over here will have one or two questions from the uh, people, the many, many people who are watching uh, virtually. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take three from the floor um, and that's probably all we'll have time for. Uh, and then uh, if I could off, I'll put those two as, as one block, and then we'll ask Bob Ward over there to come with some others. Uh, first one, lady at the front here, please. Actually, China has 1,000. We have 618. I think this isn't the issue on which we need to spend too much time. Uh, but well, can you, can you finish the off the question? Tell me. <laughs> yeah. Can you finish off the question then? What's your first? The question is with the US having so many billionaires clearly generating significantly disproportionate share of carbon emissions through their lifestyle choices, what would you propose to do about these polluter elites? Well, John, can I just take yeah, two more? Oh, sure. Could you make it? Uh, there's uh, right, right in the back row there. Uh, yes, right at the back. But can you, have you got a mic there? Yeah. Could you make the question really short, please? Then I'm going to take 
the lady there with the black mask, and that's it. Really short questions, please. All right, so from me, so I'm from Australia, and quite frankly, I'm disappointed in the lack of federal leadership coming from our government. So I guess my question is, what do you do for countries that sort of lack that political will, or even countries such as, sorry, continents like Africa that just don't have the resources to do it themselves? What, do you have any policies or mechanisms to make them pivot towards meeting these goals? Thank you very much. And last question was just here. What can be done also to demand accountability from governments? For example, I'm from Mexico, and also that they are taking actions against renewable energy projects in, in our country. And so, yeah, that, what can be done to demand accountability uh, from, from those type of governments, as he said? So inequality, political will, accountability. Uh, good summary. Um, uh, so on the polluting elites, which is you know, a very legit question, uh, there are discussions right now in the Congress, and I don't want to get into the middle of them because it's not my lane, uh, but they're discussing changes in the tax structure to deal with this incredible inequality that has been written into a lot of economies around the world. So that's one thing being discussed. Another is that uh, many of these uh, billionaires are stepping up. Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos has put together a $10 billion earth fund. He just put out a billion dollar commitment on oceans and forests. Uh, and a great, and a number of them have signed the, the donors pledge that they're going to give away all their money in their lifetime. So Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, these folks are giving it away. And they're investing. Bill Gates, for instance, has created something called the Breakthrough Initiative. And he's funding uh, half a billion dollars of his own money is currently going into fourth generation modular nuclear to see whether it can solve the problems of proliferation and waste and possible safety you know, issues. On paper, they do. Can the prototype actually deliver, which could be a game changer in certain ways. MIT is looking at this very closely and others. So the bottom line is that uh, uh, we need to have a fair system that deals with um, paying a fair share of carrying the burden of a nation's uh, uh, you know, needs. And that has to happen. I'm convinced it, it will at some point in time. Uh, what about the, uh, a country that lacks both the will and the resources? Well, <laughs> that's a bad combination, obviously. But, but the will is very hard to deal with. I mean, I've, I've talked for six years, I've talked with a certain country, trying to get them off of coal. And, and they have a capacity for a very virtuous grid system because they have great hydro and they also have wind and solar capacity. But the coal industry is just in there, you know, and uh, the politics of that can become very, very difficult. I saw that in my own country in, in, 19, in 2009 when President Obama came in and I was leading the fight in the Senate to pass climate legislation. And frankly, it was the coal folks who banded together and spent a lot of money attacking some of the senators who were trying to pass this and, and we didn't pass it. So um, you have to, you really have to persuade people to have the will to do it. 
If a government is not willing to do it, it's very hard to do because you need to have understanding about the taxes, understanding about the purchase, the power purchase agreement, understanding about the duration, the government support for you. If you don't have a government supporting you, a lot of investors will say, oh, my God, they're going to nationalize my my enterprise and steal our money. And there's a lot of fear of that. So will is critical. And that takes all. That's why Glasgow is actually so important. And that's why Glasgow is already having making a difference, because as more and more nations come to the table, anybody in any country is going to be sitting there saying, whoa, wait a minute, the marketplace is going here. Coal is changing already in nations, not because the country has outlawed it or changed it, it's because no investor will put money into it. Because it's not, it's first of all, more expensive. And secondly, has the negative consequences and they don't want to have the burden of trying to explain what they're doing. So public visibility is changing the attitude about what people are willing to invest in or not. And as I said earlier, boardrooms are changing, folks. Activists are getting on seats on on boards of directors. And many uh, CEOs are recognizing that their shareholders, because the shareholder meetings have changed, uh, are are holding them accountable for what they're doing and, and where they're going. That's why I'm saying to you, the power of people and I said at the end, this incredible combination of the power of individuals deciding what to buy, maybe boycotting goods from somebody because they find it's inappropriate, whatever. I mean, there are all kinds of options that people are choosing to employ. Uh, the bottom line is people have got to be active in creating accountability. And the business world is already deeply invested in this. And a lot of economies are going to quickly learn, as I'm sure Nick is, is you know, tells everybody uh, the the race for the for for the new technologies is going to result in unbelievable numbers of new jobs and a lot of money is going to be made by people who do invest in these new technologies so whether it's batteries or direct air capture or carbon capture and utilization and storage or hydrogen fuel or sustainable aviation fuel the markets are there The demand may not be completely, but the demand is going to come very quickly as it is created by the first mover coalition, by tax benefits. Uh, I hope we will ultimately, I think, you know, we're looking at production tax credit, investment tax credits. That really does impact the allocation of capital. So I see a lot of things happening that will have an effect on the willpower of governments. Governments would realize, uh uh-oh, we better get our act together if we want to be part of the economic future and deliver to our people. And then finally, uh, you know, what about countries uh, that, 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 you know, you don't have the accountability and there are problems and you can't move them. That's harder. I mean, let's just be honest about it. Uh, you, can, you can finger a lot of countries around the world where people have been fighting corruption and fighting accountability for some period of time. You just have to stay at it. Uh, you know, I, I just can't tell you enough how I've seen things change dramatically in one or two years. It'll surprise you. Uh, you know, all of a sudden there's an election, somebody's thrown out and somebody comes in and boom, that country's moving in a different direction. You have to stay at it. And even where you have authoritarian governments, uh, they change. Things happen. And I think a global level of accountability is going to be growing around this issue and people will oppose it 
at their great risk of staying in power and staying um, in office. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time. I, I have to apologize profusely to those who are online who didn't get a chance to um, put their questions. Bob, would you be able to send some key synthesis of the questions uh, to Senator John Kerry and his, his team? Uh, maybe there are 96 questions. That might be a bit of a challenge. Okay. But, I mean, your powers of synthesis, this is the, this is the LSC. I'm sure you can distill. Um, but it, if you could pass those to the team. But it, it's for me, John, to thank you. Thank you for your leadership for more than half a century on these issues. Thank you for being the proud father of an LSC alumna uh, and uh, coming in that capacity too. But above all, in your leadership over these uh, recent decades on climate itself, it's meant so much to the world. Can't tell you how much we cheered when your um, appointment came through. It wasn't a surprise, but nevertheless, when your appointment came through on the very first day of the presidency of uh, President Biden, your leadership has just been fundamental to the building of the momentum that we now see. There's a long way to go um, and uh, you have to stay around for a while and I'm sure that you will and lead us right through this decade. Thank you so much, John, for Thank being you. here today.